Welcome to the Cine Matchups podcast. We are your hosts, Kim Kohler and Sean Rodenberg, and we are back for another two verse 15 seed battle from this movies from books bracket challenge we have. Today we have Howard's End, which is our two seed versus the other Bolin girl, which is our 15th seed. So going into statistics of these movies, again, some pretty big differences in the critic consensus scores. So we have Howard's End that comes in at a 94% approval rating on Rotten Tomatoes based on the 1910 novel by E.M. Foster. The version we watched was the 1992 film starring Anthony Hopkins, Emma Thompson and Helen Bonham Carter. This particular adaptation was nominated for nine Oscars. Huge critical acclaim for this movie was nominated for Best Actress, Emma Thompson, Best Adapted Screenplay, Best Art Direction. And those are the three categories that won that year. And then it was also nominated for Best Picture, Best Director, Best Supporting Actress for Vanessa Redgrave, Best Cinematography, Best Costume Design, and Best Score. Uh, Fun fact, Emma Thompson actually won all 13 nominations for that year. So she won a Golden Globe, she won a BAFTA for this performance, and everything else she was nominated for, she won, which was really impressive. Going into The Other Bowling Girl... That comes in at a 43% approval rating on Rotten Tomatoes based on the 2001 novel by Philippa Gregory. We watched the 2008 film version of this book adaptation starring Scarlett Johansson and Natalie Portman. The reviews are pretty mixed when it comes to this movie. A lot of people calling it a soap opera, silly but entertaining, a lot of historical inaccuracies. And I think that's where a lot of the negative reviews were coming in from a lot of historians really ripping this movie apart, talking about things that were left out, including Mary being a little bit more promiscuous and having affairs with other men, which is not depicted in the film. Anne was actually the younger sister. The timelines don't really make sense in the movie. There's no evidence that Mary's son is actually Harry's biological child. So kind of just a mess of historical inaccuracies that I think a lot of people looked at this movie and were pretty upset about. So we'll go into both of these movies and talk about both of them, talk about some overlapping themes, their strengths and weaknesses and little details and move one on to the next round. And we want to start this out by saying that both of these movies are not our favorite genres of movies. So if we don't sound as passionate about either of these movies as we usually do in some of our other podcasts, there's a reason for that. It was a tough watch to sit down and watch both of these, I think. We are just not big on the historical period piece romance drama type of movies. Yeah, I need a light bulb in my movies sometimes. (laughs) Jesus. Yes, that and just I don't know. They're boring to us. And we we actually went into our bracket and counted and we're like, how many more period piece romance dramas do we have? Because we feel like we've watched a lot of them already. And as you can see from our previous podcast, we're not really huge fans of any of them. So I think we only have one or two left. So we were just like, hallelujah, when we looked at the bracket, because just not our favorite genre of films. I can see why some people like them, just not our thing. If I had to pick my favorite of all of the ones we watched, it would probably be Atonement. I was thinking that we really liked Atonement. That was a little bit different, though, because there was it was also a war drama romance. It wasn't too dialogue heavy either, which I think 
both of these films one more than the other is. But we can talk about that along the line. I want to start out with themes of both of these movies because they were so similar genre wise. There were a lot of overlaps in these movies, and I don't really want to go into every single one of them. But I think a huge overlapping theme we saw for both of these movies in all of the main characters was using love or sex for some form of personal gain. So setting up the other Bolin girl, we have the Bolin sisters. We have Anne and Mary and their family. They have their father, their mother, and their brother, George. And they find out that King Henry's wife is unable to produce an heir and that this is an opportunity basically for them to get an in with the King of England and basically live a great wealthy life. So they try to set up Anne with him doesn't work out, set up Mary with him. She has a baby, but then he falls in love with Anne again. And then he's just kind of bouncing around from chick to chick. And that's the whole gist of the movie. But it is both Anne and Mary in this movie using themselves as a product almost to produce a child so their family can live and be well off instead of just actually being happy. Well, that's something about our knowledge. We're not historians, so we don't necessarily know. But one thing that we both agree on is that women back in the day, 100 years, 200, 300 years ago, were viewed more like property. And both of these movies use that as the vehicle in which to use this idea of love or sex for personal gain. Absolutely. And I know this is based obviously on real life and real history, but watching this, I was just like, did no one learn? Did no one realize that King Henry is just going through wives like a roulette wheel? He had six or seven wives, insane amount of wives. Two of them got executed. And so it's it's like, does no one learn? Because the whole cycle is Anne is supposed to be set up. Then Mary has to be set up. Mary is had just gotten married to Benedict Cumberbatch like two days ago. And they're like, well, time to whore you out, Mary. We got to send you, send you out to the King of England. So then she gives birth to this child and Henry is basically like, I don't want anything to do with you because Anne's back from France with some swagger and some big dick energy. And I want to hang out with her for a while. And then it doesn't work out with her either. And then he goes to another girl who was George's wife or fiance I don't even know. It was so messy. He's the king. He gets to bang what he wants. That's the rules. For sure. But also reading into it, too, I think that was a lot of historians problems with this movie is that King Henry was depicted as this playboy kind of dude who was just wearing these clothes and not giving a shit about anybody. And he did have a lot of wives and was a little bit of a playa back in the day. But according to some historians, it just made him out to be a man whore. And that was as complex as he got. And it didn't really show anything else other than him just banging all these girls. So a lot of people were upset about that. And it was like, how do these girls not learn? How do they not figure that he's just going to leave them by the side of the road for the next girl that comes along who's younger and prettier? And even his first wife, the queen tells Anne and Mary that when she meets them is that Oh, you guys are younger and you're prettier and nobody learns. Nobody learns a lesson. Yeah, I think that's just what the times were back then. 
I don't know. I wasn't around for it. (laughs) Yeah, me neither. I guess it's hard to look at it from this modern perspective. But then going into Howard's end, we have a very similar setup, but done in a more crafty way, I would say. Sure, because it's not the father saying, oh, I have these two daughters. Let me try and get someone rich to impregnate them. Impregnate them. (laughs) It is a woman who has promised a home and doesn't get it because the will disappears when the person that promised it to her dies, but she's still going to find a way to try and get this home. Yeah. So Emma Thompson's character, she plays Margaret Schlegel and she gets married to Henry Wilcox, who is Anthony Hopkins. And Henry Wilcox is the former husband of this woman that Sean was talking about, Ruth Wilcox, who befriended Margaret and who had then promised her that home. So this whole movie is basically Margaret just getting her paws in the Wilcox house fortune. But at the end, she's just left the house and not any money, which is what she wanted and supports basically her sister, Helen and Helen's child. So not a whole lot of plot points, I feel like in this movie. And I think some people are really going to be angry at us for this. I know specifically the person who recommended this movie to us is going to be a little upset with us because this person really enjoys this movie has read the book and really likes this movie overall. So not to say we didn't love it. (laughs) We, I don't know. I feel very neutral about both of these movies and just very not passionate about either of these movies. And this is the first time this has happened in this podcast. Yeah, it is. One of the things that I thought about while watching these movies, and we mentioned it a little bit, was that both these period pieces, but one is a good chunk of Harry Potter actors (laughs) and the other movie has Marvel actors. And I think that's really funny that it's two movies that are the same genre of movie and working in these two big budget universes separately that almost battle each other. I find that battle way more interesting, the Harry Potter versus the MCU battle than the Howard's End Boleyn Girl battle. Yeah, it was funny watching it because when we started watching the other Boleyn Girl, we were like, wait, this is just a Marvel crossover because you have Scarlett Johansson, Benedict Cumberbatch, Eric Bana, Natalie Portman, and who's the last one? When we looked up the cast of this movie, it said that... Andrew Garfield was in it. Yeah. I didn't see him in there. I didn't see him in there either. So I'm going to call a little BS on that. Maybe it is, but I didn't see him, so I didn't count it. But four. Yeah, four at least that we noticed. And then you flip over to Howard's End and we have Emma Thompson and Helena Bonham Carter, which at the very end, Helena Bonham Carter is is just totally working a Bellatrix Lestrange wig. Her hair is giant and curly and down to her ass. And I was like, hmm, I wonder if they drew some inspiration from Howard's End for this hairstyle. But yeah, so that was fun to look at. And it's always fun to see actors who are paired up in these movies before these really, really big franchises they do and get to know each other so well. Because you think of the camaraderie that comes to set with that, that Emma Thompson, Helena Bonham Carter knew each other and then are playing not in many scenes together or I think at all really in Harry Potter in that universe. But they're familiar with each other and that's fun and that's cool. But they were on the set of the Goblet of Fire. Like, remember when we were in Howard's End? 
And they're like, no, because that movie was boring and I don't remember it at all. It was 25 years ago. (laughs) Yeah. No, it was fun seeing that. And same goes for the other Bolin girl. That one's a little bit more recent, too. So that was made back in 2008 while the MCU was just starting to kick up, really. I just want to talk about how weird it was. Yeah, that's all we have for it. We just thought that was more fun. And I think that speaks to both of these movies. Again, it's a personal preference thing. This is our bracket, so we can do whatever the hell we want with it. But it is a personal preference thing. The fact that we got more excited about that than the actual movie or what was actually going on in both of these movies, I think speaks to how we feel about both of them. But let's go into strengths and weaknesses, because for me personally, I feel like a lot of my strengths and weaknesses parallel to one another, which is interesting if we take these movies side by side and we put them in a battle format. And I guess we can do something a little different because I want to do just weaknesses for both movies first, because like I said, mine are parallel to one another just for comparison's sake. So going into The Other Bowling Girl for my weaknesses for The Other Bowling Girl, for me, this entire film felt like an episode in season eight of Game of Thrones. It felt like there was no character development. You weren't really interested in the characters, but they threw some cool shit in there and they threw some interesting plot points in there. And I think that's what a lot of the reviewers were talking about, comparing it to a soap opera and it being a little bit silly, but it still kept you entertained. I didn't feel like I was falling asleep during this movie. It wasn't super dialogue heavy. It wasn't super intricate. You got it. It wasn't hard to understand. And there was just some major drama points in the movie with the relationships and with how everyone interacted and how everyone's personalities changed. But there wasn't any depth to any of the characters. Okay, that stepped on my strength for this movie a little bit. But my weakness is that the story meanders a little bit. You don't really know what it's about or where the end is actually going until we get there and find out it's almost an origin story for Queen Elizabeth, which is one of the children produced at the end of the movie. But the whole movie just feels like you said and the reviews that you read, it's a lot of drama packed in there and soap opera drama. And I like that part of it. And we'll get into that in strengths. But the story is just not going anywhere. It's one character banging a bunch of women And that's it. That's exactly my problem is that these women have no storyline. Even him, he doesn't really have a storyline. We establish very quickly who they are and what the objective is for each of the characters. But we get no depth. We get no personal like dialogues from any of them. The only real moments I feel like we see in this movie is between Anne and Mary. The interaction between Natalie Portman and Scarlett Johansson, I feel like there was a lot of scenes that were done very well and they engaged a lot with one another. And that was where the movie pulled you in. But otherwise, all of these characters feel like they're just reading lines and we're just basing the interest of the movie off of the moving drama parts, which in turn then is opposite for Howard's End for me, because my weakness for Howard's End is that it is so boring. It was so, so boring. And that all the dialogue is really, really great. And we get to know these characters really, really well. 
but it didn't have any cinematic elements. It didn't have any drama. It didn't have anything interesting. The dialogue was great. The acting was fantastic, but I didn't feel there was any engagement. Thank God for the score because it woke you up every once in a while because the score was very aggressive for the tone of the movie too. I don't know. Personally, I didn't love it. I thought it just didn't match anything that was going on in the entire movie. But yeah, that's just what I thought. And it's interesting seeing it in a way where I have Howard's End going up against the other Boleyn girl and one is beating it out in dialogue, but the other one's beating it out in just being a movie and having movie elements in it. If I went to go see Howard's End as a play, I might like it a little bit better because I'm going to see a play. This is me sitting and watching a movie and I don't need big theatric elements in it or anything giant. I just need something that's going to pique my interest. I had to drink two cups of coffee watching this movie, and we watched this movie at 8.30 in the morning right after we got out of bed. So I was not tired at all. This movie was lulling me into a post-sleep nap, and I just could not get into it. I could not feel engaged by it, whereas the other Berlin girl had me engaged, but also the dialogue was silly and boring. That's my exact weakness for Howard's End. You could pretty much turn off the screen and just hear the audio and still understand the story. It felt like it's basically an audiobook where they're wearing nice outfits. But like you said, there were no theatrics, nothing big really happening. Some of the sets were cool, but it's not really a big point of the story besides the house that they're fighting for. And that's one of my strengths for this movie. You talk about the house and you talk about some of the scenery. And that is my strength for this movie is that they had great exterior shots of the house. The location scout did a really great job in finding some really beautiful houses with a lot of ivy and flowers outside of it that looked very countryside, ethereal and pretty and nice. And that was really cool to see in terms of like the art direction, set decoration of this entire movie. So I I thought that was really good. But I also did think that Emma Thompson was phenomenal in this movie. I thought she was the driving force of the movie. Thank God she was the main character. I couldn't imagine her not carrying this movie, but I thought she was great and she deserved that fucking house. Like She did some work, but she was charming. That's part of too why the dialogue was interesting and engaging at parts is because she delivered it in a way where I think Emma Thompson is one of those actresses that people just naturally like her. Nobody is talking about Emma Thompson as like, I hate her. She's the worst. Top five list of worst Emma Thompson performances. (laughs) No one's making those YouTube videos. Everyone loves her. She plays endearing characters. She has a history of doing that. Look at some of her big budget blockbuster movies that she's done. We talk about Harry Potter. She plays Professor Trelawney, who is just a likable, weird character. You have her as Mrs. Potts in Beauty and the Beast because, again, she's a likable, warm person. So I think that her just being this main lead, you're gravitating towards her the entire time and you're interested in her. And she doesn't seem like a villain, even though she's doing things for these personal gains. She doesn't feel like a bad guy in this movie, which I like. I think the best part about her specifically is that she does not feel like a bad guy and it goes into my strengths. And one thing that you know about me and movies that I love is when they blur what a good guy and a bad guy are 
because she's kind of the bad guy in this movie. Her and Helen, both of the Schlegel sisters, are bad guys. They screw over the Basts royally and then invite them over and are like, you can eat some of this food. It's like, yeah, but he doesn't have a job anymore. But then she has sex with him. So it all turns out fine and has his baby. So there it is. It's all fine in the end. It all came from a good place. But it is one of those things where Emma Thompson does a great job of being a bright, charismatic person. So it is interesting that she is doing things for personal gain, but it doesn't feel like that while watching the movie. Yeah, you have to think about it a little bit more and really examine what her level of actual interest was in Henry Wilcox. And did she actually maybe like him? Did she not? Was it all for personal gain? Because you want to believe that her intentions are good because she seems like a good person. But we know that there's some darker layers there, which is a cool piece of the character and is really interesting putting it next to, again, as we talked about the other Bolin girl, where you don't get any of that. You don't get any complexities with how you feel about their personality, what their personality actually is. You just get a base value script. Well, one thing I wanted to bring up that I wrote down in two different notes is one of the earlier scenes with Henry Wilcox, Anthony Hopkins character, when he asks Margaret to marry him, he basically says, if you want this house, you'll marry me and we'll be happy together. And she says, okay. And then later in the movie, he gets mad at her because he thinks that she's using him. Of course, you basically laid it out as you can have this house if you marry me. Men are stupid. They don't get that though. Hey, if you do this, I'll give you a hundred dollars. Wait, you're doing it for the hundred (laughs) dollars? Yes. She is a lady who knows what she wants. And as I stated before, she deserves every square foot of that house. I know he eats people. Just kidding. (laughs) Okay. Uh, Going into strings for the other Bolin girl. I already talked about mine a little bit and it relates a little to the acting, even though the acting wasn't super great, but it is Anne coming back from France with this big dick energy. It's really great because she gets upset that Mary is seeking out the king and that the king is liking her at the early point in the movie. So then Anne goes behind everyone's back and gets married to some guy without the king's permission. And so she shames the family. The family's afraid this is going to tarnish their reputation. So they banish her to France to live with like a cousin or something for a few years. And she comes back from France and she has a personality. She is like playing poker with the nobles at the table and telling people jokes and making fun of the French royals. And she's got some energy. And that's what draws Henry into her is that he says it at one point. You're different. This is a different Anne. And she is. And I thought that she did a really good job of portraying that, that she went to France and something happened. She grew some swagger. Yeah, she did. And she came back and had this totally transformative moment where you can see why anybody would be intrigued by her and want to pursue her and learn a little bit more about this girl because she's so captivating in a big room full of very important people. So I thought that was a fun transformation for her and that was illustrated pretty well. I love that you brought that up because my strength is 
the drama in this movie. And I know some of the reviews that you had talked about said it was like a soap opera. And I wouldn't liken it to a soap opera as much as a good episode of Maury. Or a bad episode of Game of Thrones. Yeah, I guess you could say that. But Maury has more people with swagger. So that's why I wanted to liken it to that. Because Anne comes back like she is the king of the world. Like every single person that's ever been on Maury has ever acted like. And then Henry's like, and you are not chosen to be the queen. And she runs off the stage through the back halls. And then she's like, you're having a baby with my sister. Yeah, it's an entire episode of Maury, pretty much. It's very exciting for those times. I feel like very common. Nowadays, it's more taboo. (laughs) But then she loses the baby and is scared that the king will get rid of her. So then tries to have a baby with her brother. Dun, dun, dun. (laughs) Which doesn't turn out well because they cut off hers and his head. Dun, dun, dun. Not things we see in Maury today, but. No, but something (laughs) that you would expect from it. One of those episodes where it's my wife slept with 800 dudes is the baby mine. And then you find out that the father is actually her brother or something. I don't know. I'm sure it's on an episode of Maury. Yeah, but it is every day. But that is to your point of this whole thing is that it's both a strength and a weakness for me. It's a strength because it keeps me entertained, but it's a weakness because that's all this movie is. It's not good. It's not good. Like Maury, it's not good. But it's entertaining. I didn't need to fall asleep while watching it, but it was just, hey, let's pick the biggest plot points between this King Henry and Boleyn's sister's drama. And let's revolve an entire movie around that and that alone. Not why, not who, not any context, but what actually happened. And let's do it up and throw on some cool costumes and some big royal sets. And here we go. We got ourselves a movie. But you know what? It was okay to watch. Was it the best movie we've seen? No. Were either of these the best movie we've seen? No. So if your mind is still racing and what we're going to choose, it'll come soon. But for now, let's go into little details that make a big difference. And because we're on it, let's start with the other bowling girl. Okay. Another thing that you know that I like in movies, and I hope everyone listening to this also knows that I like, it's people being skeevy and shifty in movies. And the cherry on top of the overdramatics of this movie, where everything feels like it has that dun-dun-dun piano part, is King Henry going back on his word after he tells Mary that he will let Anne live and delivers her the note when Anne's about to be executed that says, psych. Yeah, that's all it says. No, but a... Fun fact, I guess, about that is that she was in a way pardoned historically. I was reading this because she was supposed to be burned at the stake and instead they just chopped her head off, which is a better way to go. I think I think if I was going to be executed, I'd pick the the quick swipe of my my head. Sure. But you're splitting hairs there. Yeah. Or heads from necks. However you want to decipher it. Sure. It just seems quicker. Yeah. But I always like skeevy things happening in movies so anybody turning on anybody 
or anybody lying straight to someone's face. I love it every time. What does that say about you as a person? I'll figure it out as time progresses. Yeah, okay. Going into my little detail of the other Bolin girl, mine revolves around the costume design. So the colors of the costumes were really interesting to pay attention to and the design elements to reflect both Anne and Mary. So if you look at it, they both start very similar in terms of what they're wearing, the colors they're wearing. After Anne gets back from France, all of her costumes are very bold and colorful and bejeweled and flashy. So she wears a lot of bright greens, a lot of bedazzled, jeweled necklines, things that are very bold and big. Where you see Mary who marches to the beat of her own drum a little bit. Her colors of her costumes are a little bit more muted, but her design elements are a little bit more intricate on the actual clothing patterns. So it's supposed to reflect that she wears whatever she wants and doesn't really care about status or about what her clothes are a symbol of, but does still keep it very much her in terms of colors and not anything too flashy or bright or wanting to be noticed, whereas Anne is seeking to get noticed the entire film. So I thought that that was cool that they incorporated that little detail in there and really upped their personalities a little bit. I really didn't notice that at all. But I think that is because I'm so numb while watching these period pieces (laughs) of costumes and costume design. It's pretty much me saying to myself, yeah, I get it. They work really hard on them. They do work really hard on them. Some of the costumes in these types of films are incredible. Even in uh, Howard's End, some of the really, really nice like Edwardian era costumes that they made for them, the very tailored looks of the men, the very big frilly hats for the women, they were really pretty and they were really nice and it was nominated for an Oscar. So they did something right. But Let's go into little details of Howard's end and mine. I could not find one. I could not find a single one. So I thought about what about this movie was maybe small, but jumped out to me in a way where I thought to myself, I like that. I enjoyed that moment. And for me, there's a scene where Margaret is talking with, I believe, Henry. I'm not even sure who's in there because this one detail distracted me. And it's her and two other people she's talking to, and they're in some sort of drawing room. And they have two very cute Labrador puppies. They're two little golden lab puppies that are just flopping around this scene and are just there for really no reason at all. But I watched it. I was like, oh my God, that's so cute. But then I thought if Having a scene with two little golden labs is the thing that makes me engaged in this movie. Then we got a problem with this movie that this small little detail was something that I remembered. And I think I will remember that this movie had two puppies in it more than anything else that happened in this movie. And to me, that is a red flag and a problem. That's hilarious because there might even be a good chance that Someone couldn't find a dog sitter on set that day. And they said to the director, hey, can I bring my puppies to work? And the director said, actually, that would be great for one of these scenes. (laughs) It was me in 1992 as a two-year-old. 
I was on set of this movie and I was like, can I I bring my doggies? (laughs) I was like, this movie's boring. It's like, what do we need? We need some puppies in it. So yeah, that was my little detail because I really couldn't think of anything else. I'm going to be totally honest here. I couldn't find anything else that was a big difference maker for me. Mine was the house, the Howard's End house. It looks nice. Personally, I've been spending a lot of time on Zillow looking at houses so it's something that sticks in my mind. So when we watched it, that's what stuck in my mind is how nice this house is and what it says on Zillow. Did you find it and look up the tax history and the listing history for it? No, but if this house was on Zillow, what kind of Zillow posting do you think it would be? I would say one of the postings where it has the one picture of the outside and one blurry picture of the aerial shot yeah because they didn't want to show the inside because whatever old caretaker was running the house was like no no indoor pictures everything is dusty and covered in old sheets from 1852 yep one of those those are my favorites (laughs) those are so good because i'm like some of those are one million dollar houses who's gonna schedule a showing for a one million dollar house if all you have is an aerial shot and a front porch view yeah i don't know that's like getting a mystery bag you know you just pay five bucks for a mystery bag of goodies instead of buying a nice big old pack of reese's for five dollars i love that you likened zillow posts (laughs) to candy (laughs) we gotta get really creative during this podcast you guys because as we as we said, we don't really have a lot. But no, the house was really pretty. And I think that that was a redeeming quality of the movie. Even in general, the flats that they were staying in too were very pretty. And structurally, they were really cool. And they were in London. So they had that very London-y, fun, flat vibe to them. So overall, the settings and the architecture of all of the homes that they used was really cool. There was one other weakness. I forgot. Okay. I'm so sorry. I wanted to bring it up. Nope. Can't do it. Can't go back. Just kidding. Go ahead. The scene with the sword is goofy. Yeah. The when scene he hits with the, the guy with the flat side of the sword and knocks him into the bookcase. bookcase and he says, I'm going to embarrass you, Barry. <laughs> no. So I had to read up on that because I was very confused what happened because obviously we haven't read the book before we watched this movie. So it's a scene where Leonard Bast comes to the house And Charlie Wilcox is there and they get in this fight and he pulls this sword that they had displayed out of its sheath and hits him with the dull end of the sword, like the side of the sword. And so he wobbles backwards, falls into a bookcase. The bookcase then falls on top of him and he dies. Ridiculous. It's ridiculous. It's the one dramatic element they have of this movie. The one buildup they could have had and the one thing they could have done better. And it just looks, talk about soap opera silly. There's a soap opera silly moment right there. That looks so stupid. And so I found out because I read because I was like, how did this guy die? This bookshelf didn't seem particularly heavy. And he's a full grown man, not a child. Coronavirus. No, I'm kidding. No, he died of a heart attack because then it, it, 
put it into perspective because when he was at his house and he woke up next to his wife, Jackie, that morning, she had asked him, do you still have pain or are you still not feeling well or something uh, along the lines of that? And he had a heart attack, I guess. I had no idea. I thought he died from the impact of the bookshelf that looked like a Ikea bookshelf. And I was very, very confused. But that scene was super silly. I forgot it in my weakness, but yeah, it was silly. It was goofy. Okay. Well, I think that's all we have for both of these movies. And I think we might set a record for the shortest podcast of our entire bracket challenge for this season so far. Ironically, I think the most viewed media of the matchups that we've watched because both of these were over two hours. One was one is under two hours. One was two hours and 20 minutes and the other was like an hour and 55 minutes. Okay. So relatively the same kind of length as most of the movies we're watching, but I feel like we're getting a lot of two and a half hour, three hour ones thrown in there at us. But anyways, it's probably a super short podcast, but that's all we got for you guys. So on the count of three, we will reveal our winner, which... We'll see if you guys have guessed it. Are you ready? Yep. Three, two, one. The The other other Boleyn Boleyn girl. So as something that may come to a shock to some of you, the other Boleyn girl moves on to the next round because you know what? I like Maury. It's our podcast and we can do whatever we want with it. This is our bracket challenge. Was it the better movie? No. But you know what? We liked it better because it didn't make us fall asleep. We weren't terribly bored by it. And we just liked it better. <laughs> and was it better acting? No. Was it better script? No. Was it better costume design? No. But you know what? Here we are. The other Bolin girl moves on to the next round. And I think it's taking on Hacksaw Ridge in the next round. So best of luck to it. But this is our biggest upset so far of this entire bracket challenge. So we have a 15th seed beating out a second seed, which is pretty huge. So we'll see if next week we have another upset. We'll see if our one verse 16s, we have big upsets. But so far, this is a pretty big upset. And I think is going to turn some people's positions in our bracket challenge contest around. So So we'll see how that shapes up and you guys can go look at your brackets on Challenge and we will post some pictures of the brackets and the leaderboards on our Instagram story in a few days just so people can see where they are in that challenge. And for those of you who did not submit a bracket at the beginning of this whole journey we've been on, you can take a look and see how other people are doing and then maybe gauge your interest in our next bracket challenge. You guys can enter in a bracket for a chance to win a big prize at the end. So going forward, we will go on to our final two verse 15 seed during our next episode. And that will drop on Friday, September 18th. And that will be between True Grit, which is our second seed versus Memoirs of a Geisha, which is our 15th seed. Please go follow us on Instagram and Twitter at The Cinema Matchups. We love to hear from you. We love all of the support you guys give us. Go ahead and listen to our other podcast episodes. They're streaming now on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Anchor, and Breaker. And you can listen to all of those. Give us some feedback. Thank you guys so much for your support and so much for your listen. And for The Cinema Matchups, we are Kim Kohler and Sean Rodenberg. And we will see you next time. 